bridge by bridge, bite by bite, and scene by scene. This is the inverted cranium, the portal to Scott Mason's mind. This is the first episode of this wonderfully invasive podcast, and by invasive, I mean into my brain, nowhere else. So, topic for today is five Christmas movies you may not realize are Christmas movies. I'm going to start with one that is obviously a Christmas movie. Number five, It's a Wonderful Life. Boomers, don't hate me. I will explain why this is number five and not number one once I get to number one. What I love about It's a Wonderful Life is the lessons it can teach a nonprofit professional. I encourage any nonprofit professional, regardless of their spiritual beliefs, to watch it at least once because the alternate history genre is very valuable. So a brief synopsis of the story, a young man on Christmas Eve contemplates ending his own life, partly because his psychological and professional needs haven't been met over years due to his own begrudging selflessness. He lost hearing in one ear by saving his brother from drowning in a frozen lake, which prevented him from joining the greatest generation overseas. He had to take a job he didn't like when his father had a stroke, and he just doesn't feel like he's lived up to his full potential in life. And on Christmas Eve, an angel named Clarence comes down from heaven, a fledgling angel, he hasn't gotten his wings yet, to teach him why he is not alone, why his life matters. And the alternate history genre goes into what the world would be like if one variable in time has changed. The most frequent concept is basically what would have happened if Adolf Hitler was removed from time. But It's a Wonderful Life is on a more human level. What would happen if one upstanding member of the community just didn't exist? The most relevant example of what would happen if George Bailey wasn't around George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, is what Old Man Potter would have done to his entire town. The abandonment of the public good is what would have happened. So the nonprofit lesson is basically figuring out what your niche is, how the community would look if you were not present to pitch in. And I want to be clear, unless you're, let's say, PBS, that's not where you want to end the process. You want to end strong in coming up where your niche is so you can convey success, not meekness. PBS, they could just send an annual fund letter with Elmo saying, help keep Elmo on TV and an army of parents will keep Elmo on TV. But it's a start of knowing where your organization is and how it helps people. I'll give you my perfect example. You run a hospital in an unassimilated town where, that is the only healthcare facility that treats a specific type of condition. What would happen in your community if that hospital would have to cut that one program? Never mind close down, but what if they lose that one program? They'd have to travel further. 
anyone who needs that treatment would have to travel further. They might not be able to get that treatment at all. The financial burdens would be so much more difficult for patients. And obviously, the healthcare system in that area would not be able to save as many people. That is the lesson of It's a Wonderful Life that I really love so much as a nonprofit professional. And now we're going to veer to number four, Die Hard by John McTiernan. Yes, I realize you may not think Die Hard counts as a Christmas movie. Just because it takes place on Christmas, it may not fully capture the Xmas ethos. It does. There are a few legitimate themes that go beyond the, um, it goes beyond the slain henchman dressed up as Santa in the elevator with the sign that says, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. John McClane makes a friend that he does not see in person until the end. Sergeant Powell basically returns in later movies, so they team up later on. It also is, this is a deviation from the movie itself to a total non-Christmas movie called The Dirt. It's a biopic of Motley Crue that is based on a book about Motley Crue, and they cover the section that is the inspiration for the song Kickstart My Heart. It's Nikki Six having a near-death experience from a heroin overdose where he is revived by a Motley Crue fan in an ambulance with an adrenaline shot. That basically at least briefly happens to John McClane's marriage. John McClane played by Bruce Willis. It prob- it doesn't really work out ultimately in Die Hard as a franchise, but it at least at least the marriage is kind of there for a little while. And ultimately, it is about a faulty, motor-mouthed, problematic protagonist who still gets the job done and has acceptable, endearing features. And let's face it, acceptance is a part of the Christmas spirit. Number three, Batman Returns. You can't really divorce Batman Returns from the previous movie. Batman. The original Batman movie, Bruce Wayne is on a quest for vengeance against society's dregs in Gotham City. And though it isn't really comic accurate, he ends up finding and slaying the criminal who killed his parents, Joker. So Batman's pretty much gotten what he's set out to do in the beginning of Batman Returns. And by that point, he's really the only masked person in Gotham City who isn't part of his rogues gallery. He's basically lonely as heck. Even his secret relationship with reporter Vicky Vale seems to have fallen apart. So that is really where you're coming from with his attempt to form a relationship with Selena Kyle. 
not only form a relationship with her, but save her from becoming like him, a revenge-crazed, costume-wearing lunatic, because let's face it, Batman is a lunatic. He's the flip side of the Joker. There's one of my favorite examples of balancing Batman with the Joker is at the end of the comic, The Killing Joke. To basically capture the the relationship that Batman and Joker have, Joker tells an old wives' tale about two patients in an insane asylum trying to escape. One of them, Flash, says, oh, I'll flash a flashlight on and use it as a bridge for you. And the other guy responds, are you insane? You'll just turn it off while I'm walking on to the other side. It basically showcases the divorce from reality that both characters have and how society works and how they are both bound in their unique forms of madness. Batman's attempt with Catwoman is about saving her from ending up like him. If Batman, the first movie, is Bruce Wayne's successful attempt at vengeance, Batman Returns is Bruce Wayne's failed attempt at redemption. However, the part about Batman Returns that is most relevant of all to the Christmas spirit is Danny DeVito's portrayal of the Penguin. Penguin was a late bloomer for the modernization of Batman's rogues gallery. So this is going to be a long and overgeneralized story about the history of comic book censorship. So the golden age of comics was progressive, unchecked storytelling, though a lot of cringe stuff, obviously, because it was late tw- late 20s, 30s, depression, but there were some upsides. Superman was staunchly, let's say Superman was staunchly opposed to the Klan. He even fought them on the radio. Obviously, there was a lot of really cringe stuff, especially in the horror genre. And ultimately, that led to an insane amount of censorship, partly designed to hobble storytelling of specific genres. Horror especially got hit hard. It was also designed to hobble the ability to discuss complicated issues. Basically, comics had to pretend that the civil rights movement didn't exist for a really long time. Not really a great way to run an industry for progressive values. So that's that's basically the interregnum and the Silver Age. Once you get to the Bronze Age you start relaxing the censorship rules. Horror comics are getting a little more acceptable. Tough issues are getting addressed. Things like police corruption. You could not make public officials or police corrupt during the Silver Age. You could get a little more willing to explore the concept in the Bronze Age. You also had characters like Swamp Thing develop. Then you get to the Modern Age, That's when Batman's villains get really messed up. Joker got much more depraved. You started seeing really twisted things in a Batman comic. Penguin was a late bloomer to that. 
he was always a sophisticated criminal. Kind of like how Pablo Escobar loved hippos. Penguin loved birds. It did not affect his behavior the way Two-Face's coin affected his ideas of making decisions. Or Joker's obsession with Batman caused him to do terrible things to the Bat family. I will one day go into how to properly utilize several Batman villains, because frankly, we're really behind on that. Though I was very pleased with how Paul Dano portrayed the Riddler. He just really did a great job making him look uh, brilliant and also uh, cringe at the same time. So, circling back to Batman Returns, Tim Burton did something no one had ever done before. He made the Penguin a modern Batman villain. And he based his psychosis on alienation, rejection. It's very much in Tim Burton's style, whether it's Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, you name it. That's a core theme to his work. And it works well for Danny DeVito's Penguin. He was abandoned on Christmas Eve. He was raised by penguins, kind of like how Pecos Bill was raised by wolves. And as you can kind of expect, being that rejected by humanity, you're just not going to feel good about yourself. You're not going to be able to enjoy the holiday spirit. And as Penguin's plans keep getting foiled, initially he wants to rejoin Gotham's elite. He resorts to blackmail using a corrupt company official, Max Shrek, to get there. But he wants to join Gotham's elite. And when... Batman kind of spoils that. He starts rejecting his own humanity and targets every child in Gotham City. When Batman foils that, he targets Gotham City itself using penguins. He has totally given up on his human accomplices. And when Batman stops that and mortally wounds the penguin... He just is only mourned by the Penguins. That one scene when Bruce Wayne doesn't even say anything. He's just torn by his own mission. He's like, was I really too hard on this villain? Would this have been prevented if the holiday spirit was so much more kind to this villain. Would he have been better off if I was so much more kind to my enemies? That is the core message that I love so much about Batman Returns. Now, number two, Dawn of the Dead. Now, this movie obviously doesn't even take place in December. I still absolutely love it, and I still think it is relevant and before I go into this, I am not talking about the Zack Snyder reboot. I had the pleasure of seeing the original in theaters for one night only. You're not going to find it on streaming anytime soon. Unless 
unless you can track it down at a library or obtain a bootleg, I had the pleasure of seeing it in a one-night-only screening. And it is one of my favorite zombie movies. The other is Train to Busan, which is... It's not relevant to Christmas, but it's so... It's such an amazing movie. But back to Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead is Romero's professional experience as a maker of commercials. When I studied bartending in college, there was a news update that a person on a bridge near where I grew up, the Tappan Zee Bridge, a driver basically was heavily intoxicated, driving down the wrong street. I think about 12 cars were hit, eight people were killed. And our instructor basically said, this is the thing I hate most about being a bartender. And she said, guys, girls, you probably know the stuff I've heard on the job. You know how I've been treated. And believe me, none of that bothers me as much as someone who goes out and hurts people while intoxicated. Dawn of the Dead is Romero basically describing what he finds most horrifying about his own audience as a former maker of commercials. Consumerism. Capitalism. The hedonism of people who just want to go to a mall, look around for hours, and buy stuff. Part of the dark, materialistic underbelly of Christmas, no matter what day of the year it is. So... For people who aren't in the know, Dawn of the Dead is about four survivors who try to flee an urban zombie apocalypse in a helicopter. They're almost out of fuel. They land in a mall, clear it out, and try to survive. And as they spend more time there, they sink into a state of hedonistic social and moral degeneracy just by, like, being surrounded by that much product and goods and fun supplies and an ice skating rink and restaurants and wine and beer and everything you could possibly want. It is so perfect about everything wrong with Christmas. When you grew up and you went to school, there were always, and I was always so disgusted by kids who bragged about what Santa got for them during Christmas. Santa didn't get you anything. Your parents got you something, and that reflected your privilege. Do not brag about Christmas gifts. Any parent who refuses to teach that to their kids is doing them a disservice in life. But I digress. So the thing I really like about Dawn of the Dead most, and I don't think this was George A. Romero's intention, is how Albert Camus the ending is. So to basically get into a really over-analytical philosophical perspective, one of my favorite philosophers is actually Albert Camus. He believed among other things, that the ancient Greek hero Sisyphus was the hero or 
not he's not really a hero. He's a tragic figure. He repeatedly cheated death. And now he's condemned by the gods to roll a giant rock up a hill only for it to roll back down again. It was basically an attempt to teach him futility and frustration and make him regret rejecting his own destiny. I really feel like going into this Camus segue because several of my running buddies have just ran the New York Marathon and the Philadelphia Marathon. And I want, I had to include some ancient Greek mythology into this. So Camus believed that Sisyphus's rejection of death and his determination to find purpose, no matter how hopelessly against him the gods were, is what makes him a hero of Camus' absurdist ideology. And he also acknowledged and posited that Sisyphus's true curse wasn't the fact that he his life had been so reduced in what he could pursue. It was that he was reduced to a point where he was deprived of solidarity. So, circling back to Dawn of the Dead, the ending is so wonderfully myth of Sisyphus. As one of the protagonists, Peter contemplates ending his own life in the mall to avoid being eaten by zombies, he has second thoughts. He runs up to the roof and gets in the helicopter with the last human being alive with virtually no fuel and says, all right, let's go. So Peter had three choices, end his own life, become a zombie, or choose the one option of solidarity with the last human on earth, even though the odds are the helicopter would crash. And it's so Albert Camus. He really chose. He chose the decision that preserved the most of his own freedom. George A. Romero frequently delves into the concept of what freedom is after Night of the Living Dead. He basically goes into it from the zombie's perspective in Day of the Dead. But that may not be quite as relevant for this episode. So I just loved seeing that movie. I felt so privileged to be able to see it when the odds of me finding a copy of it seem virtually improbable because, well, it's it's out of production. It's not going to be streaming because someone holds the rights to it and has no intention of letting it on Netflix. But once again, I digress. Finally, number one, and the explanation for why I have no intention of putting It's a Wonderful Life at the top of this list. Gremlins by Joe Dante. To really encapsulate why I love Gremlins and why I believe it beats It's a Wonderful Life, the thing I love about Joe Dante's Gremlins is that it's for people who have reasons not to be merry during the holiday season. There is even a clip of Jimmy Stewart running through town shouting Merry Christmas in It's a Wonderful Life. And the response to the protagonist, Billy Peltzer's mother, 
is just misery and frustration and even remarking, this is a paraphrase, uh, just a depressing movie. Throughout the entire movie, you are basically seeing people who have reasons to not be merry or people who fail to embody the holiday spirit because there is something missing. That missing component is understanding. So I'll give you, I'll give you the rundown of all the things that basically are relevant to this movie and the holiday spirit. Mrs. Deagle, the miserly town resident, gets in the festive decoration spirit, but she is willing to foreclose on a family's house and jokingly say, well, now you know what you want Santa to give you for Christmas. And her co- and she's willing to put her Christmas decorations ahead of Billy Peltzer's lovable but meddlesome golden retriever, musing right in front of him about having the dog put down. Totally failing at the holiday spirit, especially since I grew up with a golden retriever. They're just lovely. The inept police officers during the gremlin invasion cannot process that anything bad can happen on Christmas even as they're watching gremlins wreak havoc. Billy Peltzer's neighbor, Dick Murray, lost his job on Christmas. And the most scathing indictments of gremlins about assuming that the holiday spirit is automatically great are Billy's girlfriend, Kate Barringer, whose father dressed up as Santa when she was about nine, tried to come down the chimney and accidentally broke his neck. The holiday spirit literally killed him. And finally, Gizmo. The lovable mascot of the Gremlins franchise is not seen as an equal part of nature to humanity until the end. For the vast majority of the movie, he appears to be speaking in gibberish. But at the end... Billy understands him saying, goodbye, Billy. That is the significance of the movie and the, under- and the fact that Christmas and the holiday season is about understanding. It is by far the most inclusive Christmas movie I have ever seen. It's for everybody. It is not just for Christmas fans like It's a Wonderful Life. It is not just for action hero fans like Die Hard. It is not just for comic book fans like Batman Returns. And it is far more relevant to the holidays themselves than Dawn of the Dead. Gremlins is one Christmas movie that everyone needs to see, regardless of what they practice what they believe, where they are in life, and where they want to go. It is just so heartwarming. And we also have it to thank for PG-13 movies, apart from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's just, 
I just love that movie so much, and it was made years before I was born. Anyway, thank you for listening. This is The Inverted Cranium with Scott Mason, bridge by bridge, bite by bite, and scene by scene. This is The Inverted Cranium, the portal to Scott Mason's mind.